Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. For episode number 67, Dr. Kyle Gillette, a dual board certified physician in family medicine and obesity medicine, graciously agreed to share his expertise in optimizing hormone levels to improve overall health and well-being for the older male and female athlete. Dr. Gillette's education and clinical work has given him a vast knowledge of how to identify health and performance issues caused by hormone imbalances and how to improve hormones using behavioral, nutritional, and exercise-based tools and therapies. I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I felt great all the time. Of course, back then, feeling great was just feeling normal. Nowadays, feeling great is a special thing, and I want more of it. Hormones are the key. Much of what Dr. Gillette told me I had heard or read about before somewhere in the internet universe timeline, but in our short hour together, Kyle was able to frame the topic of hormones to provide context to the whys and the hows of getting more of feeling great. And toward the end of our talk, Kyle and I ran through a set of common conditions such as feeling fatigued or feeling weak, and Kyle was able to share some of what he knows to be common causes and solutions. So be ready to take some notes. All right, let's talk to Dr. Gillette. Dr. Kyle Gillette, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking some time. I, I see that you're outside. Good call. I wish I was sitting outside in the sun myself. I love being outside. Uh, that's one of the great things about telemedicine. When it's nice, as uh, many of my patients know, occasionally I sit outside. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can get into that line of work. Okay, so you are a medical doctor and an expert in hormonal health. I, I know that because I've, I've heard you talk in some great depth about the science of human hormone health, causes of hormonal problems, health problems caused by hormonal disorders. Anyway, it's quite, it was quite something, this uh, one talk that I, I heard you on, and you really have an encyclopedic knowledge of this subject. So I really wanted to get you on here in order to drill into this area with a focus on the older athlete for both men and women. That, that's the audience here for the Wise Athletes Podcast. I'm betting you can help us out. What do you think? I would love to. Awesome. As far as my background and my passion and knowledge, yeah, I got my MD at the University of Kansas, and I'm okay. board certified in obesity medicine and family medicine, dual board. Yeah. Great. I've always wanted to be a... Uh, you know, like a high quality, holistic doctor taking care of the body, the mind and the soul. Oh. That's what I saw my dad do as I was a, as I was a kid growing up. Your dad was a physician? Correct. Uh, he still is. Oh. And I saw that he really altruistically wanted to do the best for his patients. So I wanted to be able to incorporate all different areas of health, including mental health, you know, uh, including sexual health, including athletic health and health span performance. And hormonal health seemed to be an issue that was not emphasized. And I noticed a lot of people were very happy when I suggested that we check a hormone, for example, just a testosterone or an estrogen in their labs. Huh. And I heard stories about how um, they had seen other healthcare providers in the past who had shied away from checking hormone labs. And that's how I got into it. I figured I need to be good at this in order to take optimal care of my patients. Fantastic. I'll bet that uh, you're doing a good job at that. I look forward to hearing more about it. I understand that you have a set of pillars of health, and I thought it would be a good place to start for us to just sort of understand what those are, you know, based on your experience, what do you think are the main things? 
and then maybe we can touch on them one at a time to just understand the, the high points. These six pillars of health uh, I came up with as the most powerful interventions that one can do with their life, more okay. powerful than any supplement or any medication that we can give them. Great. So interventions to not only help prevent pathology, but also lead to the highest quality of life as well. So the first two are arguably the most powerful, diet, which is highly individualized, and exercise. And the next four, I have alliteration. They're all S's. Okay. Sleep, stress optimization. So not more stress, but stress optimization, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yes. And uh, sunlight is the next one that encompasses heat and cold exposure. It encompasses being outdoors, as I all am right. currently. Yeah. And then spirit is the last one. And that's just Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's not necessarily religion, but it's why are you put on this world and what is your purpose? Purpose. That makes sense. Well, let's go back and touch on those. They sound pretty comprehensive. Exercise recently had a, a, an expert on sarcopenia on, and uh, he was emphasizing resistance exercise as important for older people in general what sort of exercise do you think is important for the older athlete? I recommend, in general, three or more days, often more, of aerobic and anaerobic training. So resistance training doesn't necessarily have to be lifting weights in a gym. Often that okay. is a good way to do it. And often that's the way to best prevent sarcopenia, which uh -huh. um, is important for not only hormonal health, but autocrine and paracrine hormonal health. A lot of the studies that people see on growth hormone and its downstream product IGF-1 and mm -hmm. also testosterone after resistance training, a lot of that IGF-1 is paracrine or autocrine. So basically it, it's important for your hormone health, but it's also important to maintain your metabolism. Interesting. Think of your metabolism as a way that you, that is how you can get rid of basically non-lean body mass, body mm -hmm. fat percentage. And a lot of times you see sarcopenia begin before obesity. Hmm. So resistance training is important in many ways. Often I joke that women and individuals um, at a more advanced age should train and live like a bodybuilder. And then a oh. bodybuilder should train and live more like uh, those individuals do. So usually... Uh, mm -hmm. You know, people start doing more cardiovascular exercise when they become more concerned for cardiovascular disease. Yeah. There's a tool called an ASCVD risk score. And this, this is basically a 10-year and a lifetime risk of heart attack and stroke and similar diseases. Okay. So um, when, when that starts to ramp up around age 50 is when people usually start to do more cardiovascular exercise. But as you mentioned, it's also important, just as important for them to do more resistance training as well. Okay, good. Well, I am going to ask you to explain some of these uh, more technical terms, some of these, uh, what these individual hormones are and do. Uh, but let's stay on your pillars. So that was a little bit about exercise. Uh, let's talk about diet. What kind of, is there like a particular diet or, or what do you think about diet? There's no perfect diet. The optimal diet, which is not perfect, is a diet that someone can do for the rest of their life. So it's not really even a diet. It's just a lifestyle. It does right. depend somewhat on genetics. And of course, it depends on medical history. 
someone who's on dialysis is going to need a different diet than someone who's competed in world's strongest man. I see. So it, diet is very highly individualized. There's even genetic polymorphism, basically a gene that you can have it or not, that you metabolize carbs better or not as well. Okay, so this probably helps to explain why you know some people really love high carb and some people really love low carb and they can't understand each other because they're genetically different. Yes. All right. Well, that makes sense. And I and I guess the it, it's totally logical that the right diet for you, assuming that it is giving you enough nutrients for your body, the right diet for you is the diet that you'll stick with um, over time and not consume more calories than you burn. That's a great baseline. Um, the other four, sleep. You want to get good heart rate variability and good deep sleep score. Not everybody has to wear a sleep tracker like a uh, there's a bunch of different biometric sleep trackers, yeah. um, rings and basically bracelets that you wear similar to Fitbit. Yeah, yeah. I wear two of them. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but sleep is extremely important and it's important to check for apnea, even in individuals with poor sleep with normal BMI. So normal body weight. Yeah. Stress is pretty highly individualized as well. This encompasses social and collective health. So, um, you know, if one of my boys or if my wife is, um, if something is stressful in their life, then it yeah. definitely carries over to me. And yeah. the same thing for myself carries over to them as well. Similar to how if an individual is trying to achieve smoking cessation or nicotine cessation, it's far more efficacious or far more successful if everybody in the house does it. Uh, stress, mindfulness, meditation, prayer, all of these are far more successful if you do it as a household. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I want to come back to the sleep one, but let's talk about the sunlight one. You said that's, that's essentially getting outdoors and, and temperature variations. Correct. Um, that has to do with, um, well, one, just the history of humans itself. So, Humans are designed to live outdoors. Being indoors 95% of the time is not something that our species has encountered in the last several thousand years. Right. So heat exposure, for example, sauna and cold exposure, uh, they both have profound benefits. Also just getting natural sunlight ambiently into your eyes, not going full Aztec, for lack of a better term, not uh, staring at the sun. Uh, that is also uh, particularly helpful for resetting your circadian rhythm. And then also, if you're outside, you're just going to be moving more. So the days right. that I work uh, telemedicine from home, yeah. often I get three or four times as many steps, even with the same amount of walks and exercise. Right. Well, that makes sense. I, I Before we get back to the my questions on sleep uh, i wanted to ask you about this um temperature variation and it, and then just and, and i think it even goes back to the diet uh, i've i've heard people advocate for essentially getting comfortable with being uncomfortable you know having extremes maybe not every minute of every day but having some times where you're colder than you want and having some times where you're hotter than you want and having some times when you're hungry and not eating as examples of this idea of, of sort of building flexibility into your, what you can tolerate mentally and also getting your body used to swings of uh, situations as opposed to always being 
comfortable at a, at a moderate temperature and your belly always having some food in it just to make a counterpoint. What do you think about that? The important phrase in that is getting comfortable about being uncomfortable. Okay. If you're not able to become somewhat comfortable with those circumstances yeah. or those discomforts, then something is not quite right and it's causing too much stress. Now, it, it'll be uncomfortable if, uh, like, let's say you start uh, going to the sauna or start yeah. a cold dunk. The first yeah. several times, it will be uncomfortable. But then the comfort level should set in. Um, there's a lot of different terms that we can give this, of course. Uh, a lot of scientists call it hormesis, which uh -huh. is basically stress on the body to help slow down metabolic systems, make you more efficient and also um, just help reset the cycle of the cell. So um, it, the, the technicalities don't particularly matter, but uh, at a 1,000 foot view, yeah. if you're able to be comfortable in a circumstance that is normally uncomfortable, it is usually a good thing. Okay, well, we want a list of good things. So let's dive back into the sleep thing. I mean, different from some of these other things, exercise and diet, even though we might not want to exercise, we totally have control over whether we do that or not. Don't have to go to a gym. I mean, I could just roll down on the floor right now and get some exercise in as long as I can make myself do it. Diet, I can eat what I, I, I put in my mouth, what I want. Uh, uh, stress management, you know, maybe my life is stressful, but I can choose to do things like meditation. Um, and going outside again, I, unless I'm incarcerated, I, I'm allowed to go outside and I just need to choose to do it. But sleep is a different matter. You can't decide to get better sleep. Uh, what do you suggest? How do people work on their sleep when they really aren't in direct control of it? Sleep is similar to any other pathology or symptom. So if you're getting poor sleep, whether it's the onset of sleep, you're having trouble getting to sleep, or whether it's the latency, or um, perhaps you have a, a sleep phase disorder where you're not getting restful sleep. Yeah. I like to get objective data, as you do as well. And sometimes that is, uh, you know, like validated data. Um, a lot of times it includes a polysomnogram, which is a sleep study. Okay. And often it is sleep trackers, like um, Fitbits, um, Aura rings, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a right. ton of them, and they're all getting better slowly. So each generation okay. gets better and better, and a little closer and a little closer to um, what we use, which is basically EKGs, Holter monitors, which is now basically just stickers, and a sleep study. Okay. So I like to get objective data and see if it's the deep sleep, which is called delta wave, or if it's the REM sleep. REM is also known as rapid eye movement sleep. Yeah. And a lot of times if there's a REM sleep problem, then I like to do, um, a gr well, one, optimize the REM sleep. If it's not enough time, then you can optimize your cholinergic function. That's a choline. So there's basically supplements and even things that you can eat. Egg yolks have a lot of choline in them. Oh. And also make sure that their dopamine to prolactin ratio is normal, specifically their dopamine function. That'll help you uh, have a little bit better quality REM sleep. If you're waking up and you have dreams, then usually that's pretty good quality REM sleep as well. Uh, good tip. Well, awesome. Okay, so I've been 
doing these podcasts for a while. And even before that, I, I was doing a lot of research. And, you know, the word hormones comes up a lot. Honestly, it's a bit of a mystery to me. You know, of course, everybody's heard of testosterone and estrogen. And you mentioned growth hormone, which I know is a hormone because it's got the word hormone in it. Uh, and you said IGF-1 and even in other things that I've heard of yours, you, you go on and on about, I mean, there's just this long, long list of things, but I wonder if you could just tell us what's a hormone and what are the main players here and tell us a little bit about each one of them, you know, a little bit, what do they do? How do they relate to each other? Like testosterone does this and estrogen does that, but really the ratio between estrogen and testosterone is important, that sort of thing. Yeah, certainly. So without going into too much detail, in layman's terms, a, a decent way to think about hormones, there's no great way to think about hormones, but separating the type of hormone versus the, uh, the definition of a hormone. So a okay. hormone is basically a molecule that will act on a tissue in the body. Okay. If it is a tissue far away, then we call it an endocrine hormone. Okay. If it is a tissue near, we call it a paracrine hormone. If it is the same tissue, it is an autocrine hormone. Oh, so, interesting. So sometimes the hormone is produced one part of the body, goes into the bloodstream, moves to another part of the body, and gets acted on. Yes. And sometimes it's closer, and sometimes it's right in the same spot. Correct. Okay. So the, the next tier, and this is kind of separate of where the hormone is acting, is the type of hormone, the type of the molecule specifically. Okay. So you have your steroid hormones. Your steroid hormones is what most people think of hormones. Okay. Um, they are sterol-based, which is basically cholesterol-based. So steroid hormones are cholesterol-based hormones. Uh, I would consider this category as testosterone and DHT. Those are your two main androgens. DHT. Also, uh, DHEA, which is dehydroepiandrosterone. That's kind of the pawn on the chessboard of hormones. There's a ton of DHEA but it's a quite weak androgen and okay. it converts to estrogen as well. I see. So you have various types of estrogen as well, which are also cholesterol hormones. And then you also have progestogens like progesterone that are also cholesterol hormones. In addition, a lot of people consider aldosterone. Aldosterone is only a couple different enzymes away from progesterone. Uh -huh. um, that is a cholesterol-based hormone as well. And then a lot of people consider, and I somewhat consider vitamin D a hormone as well. Vitamin D is also a cholesterol-based hormone and a vitamin oh. at the same time. Okay. So then you have your peptide hormones. And the term peptide has just wildly run awry. Um, uh -oh. A peptide is just a protein from two to a couple hundred amino acids. All right. For example, some people may have heard of carnitine, yeah. which I believe is just methionine and lysine. Those are just two amino acids, building blocks of proteins. So it's the smallest protein possible with just two amino acids. So it's technically a peptide as well. Some people may have heard of glutathione. They take NAC to help their liver and yeah. for antioxidant purposes or ruminations. Yeah. And um, that converts to glutathione, which is also a peptide, but it is not a hormone. So then you have growth hormone. Growth hormone is a peptide hormone. So it's both a peptide and a hormone. So it's okay. not cholesterol-based, 
but uh, it is technically a peptide and a hormone as well. Huh. So those will be the main players. And IGF-1, I've heard mentioned, that's some uh, derivative of growth hormone? Correct. The easy way to think about IGF-1 is you take how much growth hormone you have and you take how much insulin you have. And the combination of the two will lead to IGF-1. Okay. So what essentially is the function of testosterone? Um, and and I, I guess we don't have time to go through the 5,000 things that, that it affects, but what, you know, what are the main things? Like I've heard that it makes effort pleasurable. Is that right? Yeah, I believe Dr. Huberman popularized this. I could be wrong, but uh, one of the main things that people feel as a benefit from optimizing testosterone is it makes effort feel good. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, any androgen, testosterone included, has both anabolic function and androgenic function. So think of anabolic function as building up tissue, including building up muscle tissue. Think yeah. of androgenic function as uh, doing things that lead to secondary sexual characteristics. So things that males tend to do that females don't tend to do. For example, grow beards or have a lower voice or um, things like that. Okay. At the same time, testosterone and androgens in general are close cousins of dopamine, which is the motivation uh, neurotransmitter. So uh, those two are pretty closely correlated as well. Okay. And uh, estrogen, tell us a little bit about what that does. Estrogen is thought of as the female hormone, but even in mm -hmm. females, females actually have less estrogen milligram for milligram in the same concentration that they do testosterone. That's so amazing. Estrogen provides a lot of functions in both men and women. It helps with homeostasis of plaque. So if a male or a female is estrogen deficient, they are much more likely to get plaque in the arteries. Uh, estrogen is also somewhat related to serotonin, another neurotransmitter. And both estrogen and serotonin help with the preservation of the fatty sheath around nerve cells called myelin uh -huh. and the shrinking of this is somewhat related to shrinking of or atrophy of brains over time as well so often if you have an individual that's been estrogen deficient their whole life and especially serotonin deficient as well they're more likely to have if you take a ct scan a cat scan or an mri a brain that is far more shrunken because they just let lost so much of that insulation tissue in their nervous system. Amazing. Well, I guess even uh, a male athlete wouldn't want to be low in estrogen, would they? Certainly not. Okay. Growth hormone. I, I've heard that that c comes out, uh, is, is made by the body largely uh, while you are in deep sleep. Is that right? And what does it do other than growth, I guess? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Um, growth hormone is released by the pulsatile secretion, so basically big pulses of something called GNRH, um, or sorry, GHRH. And GHRH, or growth hormone releasing hormone, will uh, release growth hormone. So it's hard to measure growth hormone because you could measure it during a huge pulse or you could measure it when there's hardly any activity, even if you do it during sleep. I see. And it doesn't last very long, so you can't just like take a blood test to measure growth hormone? Correct. Occasionally, if you catch someone at 7 a.m. or if they wake up relatively late, they have a late circadian clock, maybe 8 a.m., you'll catch 
a little bit of a growth hormone elevation. But usually we measure this as a proxy by measuring IGF-1, which growth hormone is usually pretty closely correlated with. There's exceptions, of course, like type 1 diabetics have very high growth hormone but low IGF-1. And then individuals with really high insulin or insulin resistance will have higher IGF-1 but lower growth hormone. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of exceptions. Growth hormone in general, uh, if, if you look at a study from about 30 years ago from the New England Journal of Medicine, that was sort of the landmark study where they gave aging individuals growth hormone and it prevented sarcopenia. So it built up a lean body mass huh. and then it decreased their body fat percentage and improved their metabolic parameters in general. However, uh, so after this study, a lot of individuals in clinics started giving growth hormone to nearly everyone to increase longevity almost as a longevity molecule but in addition to growing things it also speeds up the turnover of cells so this is where individuals start to talk about telomeres i can't remember if it's dr oz that talked about telomeres as well but it's it's definitely been in pop culture sure and the more your cells turn over the more your telomeres tend to shorten right so you tend to literally age cellularly more quickly Interesting. So, so you might feel a little better in the short run, but you've got less of a run. Correct. And then if uh, that individual happens to have a precancer or a tumor or a cancer, then a growth hormone will grow everything. So growth hormone almost sounds too good to be true, but there's also some huge uh, potential risks as well. So in general, growth hormone replacement is mostly good for individuals with growth hormone deficiency. I see. Or for somebody who maybe is not getting good deep sleep, repairing their deep sleep will get them back their normal amount of growth hormone. Yes. Or even push it to high normal, which would be, if you can do that naturally, that's the best of both worlds. Okay. Okay. Good. Progesterone, is that, was that one of the other ones that you mentioned? Can you tell us a little bit about what that is, does? Progesterone is kind of the third... Uh, steroid hormone in the Venn diagram. And progesterone does several things in women. When you withdraw progesterone, that's when you shed the endometrial lining. So the maintenance of progesterone helps maintain the endometrium. That's going to help during pregnancy, of course. Uh -huh. Progesterone is also related somewhat with libido. And then it's also related with uh, feeling of well-being. So progesterone has a lot of, it, it converts to different types of progesterone, like dihydro and trihydroprogesterone, and also pregnenolone. But some types of progesterone are active in your central nervous system, and they help relax you. They hit GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So often when people have a drop in progesterone, often during menopause, men can as well. Um, men get of uh, progesterone both from the testes and also from the adrenal glands above the kidneys. Yeah. But when this drops, a lot of people have sleep disturbance. So if your progesterone is very, very low, often you need help with sleep. I've heard of people taking medications or supplements to try to um, increase that. Is, is that the best way to do that? Or is there, is there lifestyle interventions to be able to deal with these things? I mean, I, I think that your pillars are essentially the lifestyle interventions to help with all of this stuff. Is there something in particular about uh, progesterone that um, people should do? 
I'm a fan of getting a progesterone checked. It's one of the all hormones are hard to estimate. So some people yeah. come in and they're sure that they have extremely low testosterone levels, and it turns out they actually have extremely high testosterone levels. Oh, but progesterone is even harder than that. So okay. after getting it checked, in general, things that increase LH will also increase progesterone. Some of it's produced in Leydig cells in the testes. Um, anything that's going to help with adrenal steroid production will also help increase progesterone. So there's a few different ways that you can naturally optimize it. But the cases where you need to be most careful is when production has stopped altogether. For example, if there's somebody on, if there's somebody that's menopausal, that'd be a yeah. case. If there's somebody who's adrenopausal, so many people have heard of menopause, which yeah. is the basically ovaries no longer produce hormones in females. Many people have heard of andropause, which is where the testes slowly decrease or stop production. Yeah. Adrenopause is in both males and females, and that's just when your adrenals stop producing all those backup hormones. So some people lose their kings and queens on the chessboard and knights and rooks, and they'll feel somewhat normal. But then when they lose all the pawns on the chessboard, then they start to especially notice their symptoms kick in. Ah, but the issue is maybe the knights and rooks uh, as opposed to the pawns. Correct. Sometimes, you know, depending on the risk of the individual and depending on if they're able to optimize it naturally, it is relatively easy to replace the pawns on the chessboard. So a lot of people will take DHEA or pregnenolone. DHEA is kind of the the pawn when it comes to androgens and it converts yeah. to estrogen, which is nice. And yeah. then pregnenolone can convert back and forth to progesterone. The body mostly synthesizes progesterone, which converts to pregnenolone. And pregnenolone's in a lot of nootropics or um, supplements to help with cognitive function. Pregnenolone can also convert all the way back through as well. So for individuals with low progesterone, often it's safe to add in a touch of pregnenolone and sometimes progesterone as well. Men in particular have to be careful with progesterone because it will decrease LH. So basically progesterone can uh, theoretically decrease natural testosterone production. Ah, well, yeah. And I guess for the older athlete, this is already a, a concern. I know that um, lots of people are you know, thinking, gosh, you know, if, if I had more testosterone, I, you know, I'd be a better athlete. Um, you know, it, it, that's one end of the spectrum. And the other is I have all the symptoms that people <laughs> talk about with, uh, you know, people who have low testosterone. Is there anything related to testosterone that, uh, uh, you, you know, advice that uh, you'd, you'd want people to have in their heads? My main advice, especially for the older athlete, whether they're male or female, is before you go to a clinic where you pretty much know that you're going to be put on testosterone, see if there's something that you can do naturally. Check a level or even two or three fasting in the morning after a good night of sleep. See what's possible and try some interventions to optimize it naturally first, especially if you're just a, a tiny bit low because that's your chance. And then if you go on testosterone, then it's going to be a little bit harder to do so. So basically, uh, give yourself a chance. I guess you're asking people to don't just start supplementing testosterone. 
for a reason. And I'm guessing that there are negative consequences to getting uh, supplemental testosterone. What are they? There's a lot of theoretical negatives, but it really depends on the person. So if somebody is prone to cardiovascular disease, yeah. testosterone does the opposite thing that statins do. So they mm. will lead to more of the sticky type of lipid particle that uh, invades the lining. So they'll lead to more apolipoprotein B, mm. which is basically just a, one of the worst lipid particles. Mm-hmm. Um, it also can increase your sympathetic drive. So it can actually interfere with, interfere with sleep as well. Mm. People who are on uh, replacement testosterone have a steady state. So they're at an, pretty much an even level all the time. They don't have a spike in the early morning and a dip in the evening. So uh, that's another potential consequence. If an estrogen level or SHBG level or platelet level also goes really high, or if they have a predisposition, it can also theoretically lead to more blood clots, especially with thick blood. So it's important to get labs while you're on it if you're an individual where the pros outweigh the cons. Yikes, those sound like very bad things. Maybe we could dive into this just a little more. Things that people do pretty commonly that reduce their testosterone levels. Uh, You know, we talked about stress and getting enough sleep and and things like that. But other things like uh, supplements that people take that that are having maybe some benefit, like I've heard you talk about uh, curcumin, um, and maybe they're things that they take for prostate health, but that end up having causing problems with testosterone. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly a fan of curcumin, but some types of curcumin, especially the bioavailable ones, will decrease dihydrotestosterone or DHT, which if you can tolerate it, it's potentially good because lower DHT will cause less prostate growth and also cause less hair loss. So for the right person, uh, anything that decreases DHT can be great. For some individuals, especially individuals that have high estrogen to testosterone ratio or relatively low testosterone, you don't have a lot of testosterone in the pool to begin with. And then when you decrease your DHT, you lose some of those androgenic functions. Mm -hmm. So like we talked about earlier, you don't lose as many of the anabolic functions, but you can lose a lot of the androgenic functions. Another classic example of this would be finasteride syndrome. Finasteride's a medication some people take for the prostate or for the hair, which in general is fairly well tolerated, but uh, in individuals that have normal hormone profiles to begin with. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I guess if if people are on uh, prescription medication, then they could talk to their doctors about possible effects on uh, their testosterone if they're also worried about that. Uh, well, so I was thinking that um, I love this topic of self-sabotage, uh, things that people do in an effort to try to help themselves and they end up hurting themselves. So be sure to uh, tell us about any of those things. But let me just try to mention a few things that uh, occur to me that you think are worth talking about. So like supplements, I'm guilty of this, maybe more than most people, in an effort to try to uh, cherry pick benefits. Uh, I have uh, over the years started taking things that I thought would help. And mostly over time, I end up stopping things because I can never tell anything has, has happened. And 
maybe there was nothing in the pill in the first place. But what do you see as supplements that people take thinking that they're doing themselves some good and sometimes maybe they are, but sometimes they aren't? Berberine can be one of these. As much as I love berberine, it has multiple mechanisms of action and can do a lot of good. If there's a particularly healthy individual and they take berberine, especially at dinner or at night, it can really drop blood sugars low. And mm. uh, if your blood sugar is 45 while you're sleeping, that's going to be terrible quality of sleep. Mm. So that's one of them. I do love berberine though. So I don't want anybody to take it out of context. It's fantastic for many people. And I even prescribe it as a supplement. So that's one of them. Another one is if someone is on too many nitrates or too many over-the-counter stimulants. So uh, a, a general rule, uh, you know, three, sometimes for, if people is hypermetabolizer of coffee, three, maybe mm -hmm. even four or five cups of coffee per day. But if you're adding other stimulants or pre-workouts to that, then that can also, again, affect your sleep in the evening. If you wait 30 to 60 minutes to drink your coffee, you're going to help reset their, that circadian rhythm for cortisol, a stress hormone we didn't talk about as much, and also mm -hmm. for melatonin, uh, another hormone that we don't talk about as much. But uh, basically, you help reset your natural sleep-awake rhythm. Okay, and uh, what about things like uh, alcohol and maybe uh, you know THC, marijuana? Alcohol tends to have a exponential increase in its negative side effect with higher consumption. So everyday consumption of alcohol, even it, it appears that even if it's one and a half to two drinks, if it's daily, it will immunosuppress you. Hmm. So um, once a week alcohol, uh, even two to three ish standard drinks or so does not appear to have a huge effect but it depends on uh, what you're trying to optimize as well. So alcohol pretty significantly upregulates the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. And then if anybody has ever worn a CGM or glucose monitor like a Libre or Dexcom while they're drinking alcohol or any liquid calorie, but especially alcohol, it is shocking how much it will spike up blood glucose. Hmm. So very intermittent uh, for you know, special occasions and such for alcohol, in my opinion, is the way to go. Some individuals are able to tolerate more and some individuals aren't. For THC and cannabinoids in general, uh, it appears that CBD in general is quite well tolerated. Smoked THC, smoked or vaped, significantly upregulates the conversion of testosterone to estrogen, so it'll decrease testosterone, increase mm -hmm. risk of gynecomastia and um, things like that. And also the, the main thing with it is depending on where you get it, even if you get it from the local shaman store or whatever they call them, a lot of times there's uh, adulterants in them, which is basically things that uh, are not THC that are still in yeah. there. For example, yeah. a lot of them have kratom in there. So uh, I would get, if you choose to use THC or CBD as a supplement, if you're able to in your area, uh, one, of course, talk to your doctor about it. And then two, just be especially careful where you get it from. Hmm. Yeah, I guess anything that you're going to burn, you're going to change the chemicals. And and I'm just not a fan of putting anything in my lungs um, other than air. I, I agree. Unless there's a medication that needs to be, of course. 
Right. Although I hate that too. If I, if, but if I have to, okay. Uh, all right. And are there any um, are there any other things that uh, affect people's hormones in a negative way, like you know maybe birth control or, or other things like that? Birth control or oral contraceptive pills can. So uh, we're not quite to birth control for males yet, but um, there's a lot of options and a lot of study being done. Birth control will decrease, in most cases, free testosterone, which if there's a female who has extremely high free testosterone naturally, and that's one of the therapeutic benefits, then maybe it's a benefit, but usually it's not a benefit. Mm. Um, But uh, yeah, often after stopping birth control, I tell people to give their bodies at least six months to help recover naturally, and then to get labs in about six months to see if they've recovered their baseline function. Mm. Um, If they get labs before, during, and after, they can always see how it affects them uh, individually and weigh the risks and the benefits. I also tell people that, um, you know, there's no greater benefit than being able to choose when you have a child or have a family member because if it happens at the wrong time it can be a huge negative so mm-hmm. that's another pro and con to weigh for sure yeah i guess a lot of these things have that that there's there's pros and cons and you just got to decide for yourself i just advocate for understanding what they are and then you can make a good decision I have a, a list of sort of general conditions, uh, some of which I've encountered off and on uh, in my life, and, and I, I'd, I'd love to just kind of get your reaction as a as a hormone expert. I know you're also a medical doctor. We've talked about lifestyle interventions and things like that. So you know, maybe anything new that occurs to you that um, you would say to somebody, you should check this, or you know, I do this with my diet, or that with my sleep, or I try you know, less of that kind of exercise and more of this, any, any kind of general things, if there's something like that, let's just hit them, uh, a machine gun you here. Um, so I often hear from people who say they have low energy. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a very nonspecific symptom. Um, yeah. it's, which is somewhat unfortunate in cases of that, I almost always order good lab workup, but there okay. is interventions that you can do empirically. If you look at elite athletes, they're very similar to children when it comes to the quality and quantity and function of their mitochondria or the powerhouse of the cell. Mm -hmm. So the two most powerful interventions for your mitochondria, it's not NMN or creatine or carnitine or CoQ10, which all help. It is really good sleep, one, of course, specifically REM sleep. And then really good zone two or so cardiovascular exercise. So that would be my intervention recommendation. And um, it's thankfully getting some of the press that it deserves as well. Basically light cardio that doesn't make you super tired. Um, It's uh, whether it's walking or cycling or whatnot, it is just enough to make you a little bit out of breath, but you can talk pretty easily through it. And perhaps you're sweating a little bit. Great. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, low sex drive. For low sex drive, I think about testosterone and I think about especially dopamine and dopamine to prolactin. So there's a lot of things that increase prolactin. Um, having a baby is one of these. So men's prolactin also increases in the peripartum and postpartum period as well. Hmm. Other things that increase prolactin, casein can, casein protein. 
Uh, okay. Like also, that's milk protein? Correct. Cannabinoids okay. or THC can. Kratom can increase prolactin quite a bit as well. And increasing prolactin increases or decreases sex drive? Decreases sex drive. So, okay. So if uh, you have more casein protein, you have a lower sex drive? Possibly. It's okay. a relatively weak prolactogenic agent, but okay. uh, theoretically it can, and I have seen it clinically as well. Interesting. Um, gluten as well, but uh, also any cannabinoid or kratom. Um, there, there's a lot of interaction between estrogen and prolactin. So basically estrogen activates the prolactin gene to produce more prolactin. So that's another way how estrogen can cause um, symptoms like uh, nipple puffiness and itchiness is not necessarily just due to estrogen, but due to prolactin downstream of that. Interesting. Okay. So prolactin and dopamine are basically uh, inversely related. The higher your prolactin, the lower your dopamine. The higher your dopamine, the more it blocks prolactin release. And dopamine is the motivation and libido hormone. If you take something that increases dopamine a ton and blocks prolactin a ton, then something called your, um, basically the, the interval between orgasms becomes uh -huh. very, very small, even minutes, if you take uh -huh. a medication like that that's strong enough. So for individuals with delayed ejaculation, often we give them things that increase dopamine and decrease prolactin. For individuals with premature ejaculation, we give them things usually that increase serotonin. Ah, interesting. Uh, okay, next one that I had on my list was uh, essentially just like soreness. You know, my you know my my muscles are feel sore or or I don't know, not not tired exactly, but sore. Maybe I've got maybe I feel like I have inflammation or something, joint pain, that sort of thing. I'm a huge fan of checking a C-reactive protein, which is one of the best general markers of inflammation within the body. Yeah. I also look very carefully to see if this individual, you know, may they be depleted. Maybe they're overtraining if they're still an elite athlete. Maybe they're yeah. depleted in ubiquinol, which is the active form of CoQ10. Perhaps they need more extra fuel tanks. Um, you know, uh, lactic acid production and use is not a bad thing. It's actually good, but obviously too much of a good thing is not good. Maybe they need uh, something like a creatine supplement, which is basically an extra fuel tank. So uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can look for muscle soreness. Occasionally, we'll also check a creatine kinase, which is a marker of muscle protein. Or uh, basically, if you exercise really hard, then this could be elevated even above the normal range. Mm -hmm. But if it's really, really elevated, that can be a sign of rhabdo or rhabdomyolysis. Um, and I know there's several CrossFitters that have gotten it before. But that's one thing to make sure that you're not overtraining and you do not need a break. Is that like a sign of muscle breakdown or something like that? Correct. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Rhabdo All is right. basically where your muscles break down so much that they injure your kidneys. Ah, right. All right. Uh, okay. Next one is loss of strength. I'm just feeling weaker. Instead of getting stronger, I'm getting weaker. Yeah. I would think a lot of ergogenic aid or androgenic function. So some ergogenic aids are just things that help you retain salt. So adding salt to your pre-workout meal or drink can potentially help. Huh. Checking electrolytes, checking magnesium. Often individuals benefit from magnesium malate, 
because the malate, well, one, it helps it, the magnesium be absorbed to decrease cramps, but it also helps with being a buffer for lactic acidosis in the muscles. And then uh, glycerol is potentially a help as well. Basically, you don't have to hydrate or drink electrolytes so aggressively if you take some glycerol with some sodium. So um, those can all help you lift heavier weights and feel stronger. So think of anything that a power lifter does to feel stronger. And the last thing they do is they either optimize or take uh, androgens that are heavily androgenic. So uh, if someone's on, uh, you know, if someone has very low testosterone and they're also concurrently on something like finasteride or dutasteride, or if they just have low testosterone, that is a very common cause of generally feeling weak. Does caffeine help in this way? Uh, or, and does it have negative consequences as well? We should have mentioned that one earlier. Caffeine helps. It is a wonderful ergogenic aid. Fantastic. Yeah. Interestingly, you can study if you give people an intranasal suspension of testosterone, anything that's taken nasally, whether it's B12 or whatnot, it goes straight to your central nervous system, to your brain. And testosterone directly acts on the brain. So testosterone given in a nasal gel before lifting or before doing anything makes people feel particularly strong. Uh, testosterone or caffeine? Testosterone. Caffeine ah. may do the same thing through uh, intranasal administration. I'm not even sure if people have done that before. Well, I know that the caffeine, when you ingested it, I understand that it takes a while to get into the bloodstream and, and, and have its effects. So, so you're saying that if you snorted it in some way or did some sort of a nasal rinse with caffeine, it, it might be a faster administration? I'm not sure. Uh, theoretically, yes. But what I do know is if people do that with testosterone, that okay. is a very fast administration and um, quite helpful. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so the last one I had on my list was inability to focus. Focus has a lot to do with dopaminergic function as well. So dopamine is the motivation hormone, which can kind of help you motivate and focus both. It also has to do with what I call adrenergic function. Basically, it's your adrenaline, your noradrenaline, which is kind of related to adrenaline, plus your dopamine. So individuals with ADHD that have um, inattention dominant ADHD yeah. do best when they essentially take a, a stimulant. Dopamine is a, a mild stimulant and there it allows them to focus much better while that is working throughout their body. So there's obviously a lot of things that you can do to help your dopamine. Wild green oat extract can help your dopaminergic function. Anything that's a specific type of uh, MAO inhibitor, which basically there's a bunch of different supplements and medications that are as well that can help dopamine too. Some people will take an appropriate dose of L-tyrosine, which is a dopamine precursor. So there's several ways to help focus. Sometimes it's more heavily weighted toward dopamine. If you're also extremely fatigued and tired and at the same time not able to focus, that might have to do with um, adrenaline burnout or too low of adrenaline levels. Uh, well, and I, I suppose if you've been going really hard, lots of stress, that sort of thing, then just chill for a while and just try to get back to neutral. But I mean, one way that I've heard that people can boost adrenaline is to hyperventilate. Is that right? That's correct. So there's a lot of things that you could do. Um, one of my favorite ways to reset your entire 
adrenergic system, which just think of this as all of your neurotransmitters that are stimulants, adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine, is called a dopamine detox. And this is different for everyone. Yeah. For a lot of males, especially in the middle of the country in Kansas and such, this is yeah. your hunting trip. So if you go uh, for a week-long elk hunt or moose hunt or whatnot, then you have no music, you have no phones, no screens, no computers, no service, and um, also no intercourse and um, like less social interaction. So huh. the sensitivity of those receptors, including the dopamine receptor, are much, much more sensitive. Uh, for women, this could be camping trip. It could be anything. It could be yeah. hiking. Uh, people who love hiking often have great focus when they come back. Uh, One way to test at whatever intervention you use for your dopamine detox, get into your car and then turn on the radio. And if music sounds better than it has in a long time, then your dopamine sensitivity is much better. Awesome. Interesting tip. All right. We've come to the end of my agenda, and I want to open the floor for you to just tell us if there's anything else, anything we haven't covered that you really hoped we would, what would you say? One thing that I like to say is every human is a unique creation, and everyone has their own goals. Uh, I'm as natural as they come, and I don't like to use medications if at all possible. Yeah. But everybody has different goals, and the natural thing that happens to humans is that um, bodies slowly degrade over time, and eventually all of us will turn to dust. Um, yes. I, I think regardless of how science advances in the future, eventually all of us will. Perhaps we'll find a way to transfer consciousness and such, maybe. But because of that, I think it is perfectly fine and okay to try to fight the process. A lot of people say, don't fight it, just um, you know, accept it. But I think it's perfectly fine to try to have a really long health span and emphasize quality of life at the same time. Yeah, good advice. Even if you don't live any longer, if you're healthy the whole time, that's pretty good. Definitely. Well, Dr. Gillette, how can people find you or find out more about your work? My main base is on Instagram. My handle is Kyle Gillette, MD. Gillette is like the razor with the E shaved off. You can also find me at GilletteHealth.com. Okay. And on all other platforms, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. cetera, um, it's just Gillette Health. Fantastic. Well, I'll get all that in the show notes for anybody who wasn't able to take notes on that. Dr. Gillette, thank you very much. I feel much more informed this morning than uh, I have in the past. I appreciate your help. Thank you, Joe. My pleasure. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion with Dr. Kyle Gillette. You can find more information about Dr. Gillette in the show notes. And while you're there, you can take a free fitnesses practices assessment. Send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.